Amen. You may be seated. Would you join with me in prayer this morning? Father, we come before you to honor your name and to praise you for being most worthy of all affection and all adoration. This morning, would you remind us of just how merciful you have been to us? How when we most certainly deserved not only your wrath, but to be made miserable for our sins, instead you showed us mercy, you stooped to our level, and I pray, Father, you would remind us this morning of your mercy and work your mercy in our hearts that we might be characterized as a merciful people, forgiving and slow to anger and abounding in covenantal love just as you are. I pray that you would work that in our hearts this morning through, through your word and through the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all who agree, would you say amen? Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We've been in a series for some time now on how to be happy, right? And um, who here thinks it's going to take a little while for us to get used to the echo of this? Uh, it's going to take a while. It sounds, I guess it's going to take me a long time to get used to, but we'll do it. God's going to help us with that. But who here wants to be happy? I mean, that's what this whole sermon series is about. Not only individually, but who wants to be a part of a church that's happy? We want to be an abundant people, a happy people, an enjoyable people, the kind of people that are, are pleasant to be around. And that's not necessarily always the case in, in the church these days. The church is very oftentimes comprised of miserable and factious and grumpy people, and that's the last thing we want around here. We have to spend a lot of time with each other every Lord's Day at, at a minimum, right? So we want to be happy. Amen? I mean, how can we be the city on a hill shining a light of good works into the city if we don't have the blessings of God, not only in our life, but in our heart deep down? And so that's what this series is about. And today we're going to be looking at the next beatitude, and it's the next way in which we can cultivate happiness and blessings in our life, and that is through mercy. Let's read together, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what we looked at last week. And this week, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed, that is, it can be translated, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. 
So the Bible tells us that if you want to be happy, if you want to receive mercy, then there is a prerequisite, so to speak. You must be merciful. Now, this does not mean that in order to be saved, to receive mercy for your sins, that you have to somehow conjure up mercy from within you. None of us have mercy in and of ourselves, amen? Trying to get mercy out of your own flesh is like trying to pump a well that's dry. No matter how hard you pump, no water is going to come out. There is no innate mercy inside of our hearts. Mercy, like love, like kindness, like gentleness, meekness, all the various virtues listed for us in scriptures, they all come from the, the source, which is God. They all come from the throne of God. So we don't show mercy in order to obtain mercy. And God does not give us mercy because we are merciful. We should say that we only are able to be merciful because God has been merciful to us. Amen? As God's mercy flows from heaven into our hearts, it flows to us and must flow through us. Like the, like the widow's jar of oil, as you share it, God continues to fill it up. As you forgive, as you cut others slack, as you do your best in the power of the Spirit to not be overly scrupulous and censorious and judgmental and condemning and short-fused, but rather try to be slow to anger and abounding in covenantal love as you pour out that mercy to one another, then God keeps you full of mercy yourself. You need mercy to be able to extend mercy, especially if you're going to get along with others, if you're going to be in this world, and God keeps you full of it and gives you the ability of it. You want to receive mercy? If you want to be full on mercy, you want God's mercy to flow through you, then you have to be merciful to others. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. It's a parallel passage. The Bible says that we love because he first loved us. He doesn't love us because we love. We love because he loves first. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He forgives us and that gives us the ability and enables us to forgive others as well. Matthew 6.14 shows the contrary, though. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I want you to zero in on this, and I want you to see it, so I want, you, I want to say it very plainly. This is coming from the Lord's Prayer, which most of you are familiar with. And it begins with two, what, what two words? What, it begin, what does it begin with? Our Father. So the Lord's Prayer is for Christians. This is not referring to our relationships with non-believers. This is not necessarily referring to the relationship between a sheriff and a criminal. This is referring to the relationship between you and us, all of us together. It's our Father. And as Christians, if you don't forgive one another, think about the people in this room. If you aren't willing to forgive, then why should you expect God to keep on forgiving you? Why should you expect God to pour out mercy into your life if you're going to be a dead-end street with it, if you're not going to be a conduit for mercy to others? But if you want to be happy, be merciful to the people in this room. 
We want to be a happy community, don't we? Well, the key, one of the keys we have to learn this morning is we have to extend mercy to one another. We have to take it easy on one another. Cut each other some slack. Don't become harsh or overly critical or judgmental. But to be merciful, ready to forgive. Amen? That's how we can be a happy church. Miserable churches don't forgive. They don't show mercy one to another. They hold grudges. They're easily offended and touchy. But if we want to be happy, we have to show mercy. I mean, which of your children, if you bought them a Christmas present, would get to keep their Christmas present if every time their kids came over, they refused to share? Right? We've all been there. Fortunately, my kids are grown up a little bit, and so I don't have to deal with this quite as much. But we've all been there where people came over to our home, and the kids are playing in the back, and it turns out that your little Johnny is a stingy little brat. Right? You walk into the back room, and you're like, why won't you share? How could you not share? I mean, he's embarrassing you in front of the company. And what do you say to them? You say, you didn't even buy this toy. You didn't even buy this gift. You just got it for Christmas. And now you won't share it with your friends? You know what? You have to have that for a little while. Isn't that how it goes? When they do what is a, a shameful, embarrassing act, not sharing something that was just shared with them, they lose it, don't they? Until they are ready to handle those gifts. And, and that's essentially what Jesus is teaching us here, that if you are going to be blessed by the Lord, if you're going to enjoy true, genuine happiness on the inside, if you're going to experience your Christian life with fullness and, and, and happiness, well, don't be merciless. Because if you're going to be merciless to other people, God's going to say, well, you know what? I guess you can't handle that present right now. Yeah. So what you're saying, Pastor Brandon, is that even as a Christian, I can still be miserable. Yes, we all have known and we've all been miserable Christians before, haven't we? Right? Yes, you, even as a Christian, can be miserable. Right? Blessed are the merciful. We can say it the other way. Cursed are the unmerciful. And what are they cursed with? Lack of happiness, first and foremost. Miserableness inside their own heart. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. It really expands this concept. And I want you to follow along with me as I read. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying, when you have church, things get worse. How embarrassing would that be? He'd rather you not even go to church because when you go to church, you just make matters worse. You're supposed to be getting transformed and changed and growing in church. No, not them. Things are getting worse. Why? Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Okay. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So let me explain this real quick. There's always divisions, and we're not talking about the differences and the distinctions between men and women or, or adults and children. Those, those divisions always exist. Those aren't sinful divisions. And there's always going to be fights. There's always going to be factions. There's always going to be a little strife in the church. Fortunately, by God's grace, it's not all the time. Amen? 
But there's going to always be, and there's going to be in our church, and just, it's going to just be a little while. You know, we're having a great time right now, but trust me, there's going to be a division at some point in time, some factions, some strife, some contention, and those things must come into churches because they make it known who are the genuine people. That's why you don't, you don't really know, we don't know the hearts of people, amen? But the Bible teaches us that after 7, 8, 10, 12 years, you start to get to know people. And you, over the course of a Christian life, begin to see other people who once looked like Christians fall away and apostatize. And very oftentimes that happens because of church fights. The church fights reveal them. That happens. That happens. And, and that have to, has to happen. That's what, that's what Paul says here. But this is not that kind of a division. He says, look right here in verse 20. The kind of division that they have is different. It says, when you come together, when you go into church, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So you see, the division that they had was between the rich and the poor. And the rich were coming to church and, and, and picking out, you know, indulging in gluttony and drunkenness, while the poor were coming to church and having nothing to eat. So, with, so this is not the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper has one cup and one loaf, and we do this here to symbolize that we are one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one church. Amen? The Lord's Supper is to be unified. It is a symbol of unity. That's one of the symbols that it is. That's why we eat together. Kids, remember, listen, kids, if you are partaking in the Lord's Supper, you need to wait for the rest of us. Amen? I'm here to, to help you parents, right? You need to wait for the rest of us. So we eat together and we drink together. And that's to symbolize unity. That's to symbolize unity. But if the poor are going without food and the wealthy get to have lots of food, you're sinning against the very picture of the Lord's Supper. That is a division. That's a sinful division. That's a sinful division. Which, by the way, when we have our church picnics and you don't have food or if you don't have enough food, we have food for you. Amen. We, we don't want anyone to go without. And by God's grace, we do not have the poor named among us. People in our church who have gone, fallen on hard times, have not had necessarily enough money to, to fit the bills, we help them we, because we want to be in this together. We want to be unified. Amen? But this church was divided. They were divided along economic lines. And so what happens? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. You see, God had given them some very valuable blessings, some wonderful Christmas presents. He had given them long life. He had given them health. Those are two of the covenantal promises that are our birthright in Christ. He gives his people long life and health. Those are blessings. But they weren't sharing it. They wouldn't share it. They wouldn't share their long life. They wouldn't share their health with the poor. Wouldn't even share their own meal. And so what does God say to them? Well, if you won't share your toys, I'm taking them back from you. That's right. If you won't be forgiving, if you won't extend mercy, then don't expect God to pour out the blessings of happiness in your own life. If you want to be miserable, continue to cultivate grudges and stir up strife and extend a lack of mercy. You know, Peter once asked how many times he should forgive a brother. And what did he say? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. That's right. Seventy times seven. Now, this, this particular passage is oftentimes taken out of the context and misapplied. This is not to be applied universally in every single situation on the planet. 
You know, imagine a criminal who's murdered someone telling the judge 70 times 7. Now, this doesn't apply in, in a criminal case. This is not about the relationship between a sheriff and a criminal. This is not a relationship about a, about, between a parent and a child who's just disobeyed. When your children disobey, you are to instruct them and to discipline them. Amen? And, of course, you have love and mercy in your heart for them, but you must administer the proper discipline. That's not the time to, to say 70 times 7. That's how you can raise a, a bad little kid. No, you have to discipline them. But when it's talking, when the relationship is between brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter says, how many times should I forgive a brother? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. God's mercy is abundant and so should yours be. But then Jesus tells a parable after that. He tells a parable of a servant who was forgiven a massive amount. And you know how it goes. But then he goes to another servant and he puts him to the, to the rack. Right? He puts the screws to him, turns him upside down and shakes out all of his money and gets every last penny out of him. And so what does Jesus say happens to that wicked unloving, unmerciful servant. Remember, we're talking about two servants who serve the same master. It's like people in church. That's what the parable is referring to, people in church. And what happens to that wicked, unmerciful servant? Matthew chapter 18, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had had mercy on you, and in anger, his master delivered him to the, would you say that word with me? To the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Talking about Christians. You see that word jailers, you can look in the footnotes of your Bible. Scholars point out that it can also be translated tormentors. Tormentors, which is the same word that is used for demons. And the point is very clear. If you want to be tormented by demons, like Saul was, right? Like Job was, not for a sin though. If you want to be made miserable, if you want to give license and legal ground, give a foothold to demons in your life and in your church, all you have to do is stop forgiving one another. Hold grudges. Keep on being angry. Appointing yourself the judge. And the devil will seize that opportunity to torment you, your family, and your whole church. You want to keep the devil at bay? You want to conquer the devil? You want to resist the devil? It's very easy. Forgive. Let it go. Be merciful. Amen? Amen. Do we want to be a happy church? Yes, then we must be a merciful church, one to another. Christians must not be characterized by a lack of forgiveness or the refusal to extend mercy. Christians should not be characterized by being hypercritical, judgmental, overly scrupulous, nitpicking, gnat straining, and backbiting. We do not want to be Christ church of the Pharisaical order. We want to be Christ's church, merciful and tender ready to forgive, ready to restore relationships, not bridge burning, not with tongues set on fire of hell, which is the devil using your tongue to burn down your church through a lack of mercy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. 
Paul gives us a stern warning here, and I need you to apply this to your family and to this church and to town. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with, with his neighbor. It's not enough not to, to, to lie. You also have to speak the truth. For we are members one of another. And in, the, in context of talking about church relationships, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why not? Why should we not let anger just continue on and on? Why should we not nurse our hurts and meditate on those people who've done us wrong in all the various ways they've done us wrong, staying up late into the night thinking on these things? Why should we not do that? Because to do so gives opportunity to the devil. Right there in verse 27, forgive, be merciful. That way the devil doesn't have any opportunities, right? See, the devil will seize your anger, your wrath, your over-scrupulous nitpicking of others in your life, your judgmentalism. He will seize that and establish a foothold in your life, a vantage point from which he can attack your family and your church and your neighborhood if you know your neighbors, right? You ever wonder why sometimes we make stupid and sinful decisions? I'll tell you one way to make sinful and stupid decisions is to cultivate a grudge against another Christian. The devil will seize upon that opportunity, and it will be like you have a giant handle on your back, and he will move you around, lead you into all manner of stupid and sinful decisions simply because you won't let go of that grudge. Amen? Amen. I've known people, and I'm sure you do too, that have become so accusatory. Everything is everyone else's fault. Everything is always something against them. And it is, it is eating them up so much that they have become lonely without a friend in this world. And I have known people so accusatory and so ready to point the finger that it has driven them to madness, to mental illness. May we, Christ Church, reject all stewing on hurt. Amen? Don't stew on it. You have to, right now, think of the person in your life that, that the Lord is pointing out. Think of that person and you have to, with Jesus this morning, say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for stewing on that. Please help me to stop stewing on what I perceive to be a hurt. Amen? We cannot stew on our hurts. We can't be constantly taking up offenses. And we certainly shouldn't be meddling in other people's offenses. Instead, we need to be cultivating merciful spirits. Merciful spirits with one another. We want Christ Church to be characterized as a place that knows how to cut some slack, that knows how to smile, that knows how to be happy. Amen? Amen. So let me ask you just a few questions. And you really, you really want to take this opportunity to, to deal with this in your own heart. So ask yourself these questions. Are you holding on to any hurt?
I, I hope the answer is no. But if the answer is yes, you've got to acknowledge that before the Lord. Amen? You don't have to say it out loud, obviously. You may not even need to tell the person. They may not even be aware of it. It might actually just make things worse if you do. But if you're holding on to a hurt, I mean a real legitimate hurt, that's what you need to do this morning is let that go if you want to be happy. And if you want to help us be happy. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Do you go to bed offended and wake up touchy? Are you, are you perpetually finding yourself on the wrong side of everyone else in your life? You're just perpetually offended. Somebody somewhere is always doing something wrong against you. That's something you need to take before the Lord. Touchiness is not a virtue. It's a lack of love and self-centeredness. Let me ask you another question. And I'm, I'm talking slow because I really want these to penetrate your heart. Do you meditate on all the ways that you've been done wrong? Could we right now get out a piece of paper and you could write down all the ways that people have wronged you? Of course you could, right? When you, write the, when you rehearse those things in your mind, does your heart have anger boiling up inside of it again? As you think of those hurts, and of course you're going to remember them. We can't lobotomize ourselves and forget our entire lives, but you're going to remember them. Let me ask you, when you rehearse them, when you read that list of offenses, does it begin to frustrate you and irritate you and cause you to be judgmental and angry inside your heart? If it is affecting your emotions that way, it's a good sign that you have not given that over to the Lord and you have not shown mercy to that person. Are you keeping a list and checking it twice? Right? None of us are Santa Claus in here. We don't get to keep a list. Only the Lord does. Why would you willingly have the Lord spank you? Why would you willingly have the Lord to take away his blessings from you when all you need to do is repent and be merciful? Why would you willingly give Satan handles in your family and in your marriage and in your church? Amen? Amen. Say, but Pastor Brandon, what if they committed a crime? I'm not talking about that. If someone commits a crime, you turn it over to the civil authorities. They are the ministers of justice. But the point is, that's not you. You are a minister of mercy. Amen? Amen? Yeah, but Pastor Brandon, hurt people hurt people. Sure, but they don't have to. How do I know? Because Jesus was hurt. Jesus was actually the only person who was totally pure and innocent in the affair, in the being hurt. And yet Jesus did not return evil for evil. In fact, the Bible tells us that in Jesus' life, mercy triumphed over justice. Where sin abounds, grace, mercy abounds even more. And Jesus says, if you want to be happy, be like him. Be like him. So, Pastor, I need help with this. Last thing, and then we're going to wrap it up. But if you need help with this, the first thing you need to do, and listen very carefully to this, consider the actual reality of the situation. If you have a grudge and bitterness and anger inside your heart and you're not able to be happy, you're miserable because you can't forgive, consider the actual reality of the situation. First, consider how much mercy the Lord has given to you. Meditate on that. Amen? Right? Consider Christ's mercy toward you and consider that you don't have all the information. Amen? 
That's why we must be slow to anger because we very often don't have all the information. You don't know what they were going through. You don't know necessarily what restraining factors they've been through. You don't know what's going on inside of their heart. You don't necessarily have all the information. Amen? And so you can afford to show some pity rather than to, to come down hard on them. And even if you do have all the information, remember this, you're not the judge. You're not the Lord. They have a Lord and they have a master that they will answer to, and it's not you. So recognize the actual reality of the situation. Second, you need to stay in constant prayer. If you can't get rid of of a lack of forgiveness in your heart, if you have no victory in this particular area, you need to pray and ask God for help. It might just be that you've not prayed for the other person. Pray for that person. Ask God to help you to stop being so bitter toward them. Ask, Ask God to help you restore that relationship. Do you want to be happy? You want to have a happy marriage? This is the sort of prayer you need to be praying all the time. Be in constant prayer that the Lord would grant you this. There's a lot of things you don't have in your life because you don't ask. So ask for help being merciful. Ask for help not being offended so easily and touchy and always getting in fights with people. Ask the Lord to help you be merciful. And then step three, I want you to develop a strategy. And Paul tells us how to do it. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Look. You say, Pastor Brandon, what you're saying is I just need to be a doormat. I need, I need to, to play, uh, roll over and play dead constantly every time someone does, uh, does me a wrong. No, not at all. I'm actually wanting you to be active about this and to cultivate a strategy of overcoming the evil. You're not going to overcome the evil. If it is a legitimate evil that's been done to you or a harm that's been done to you, you're not going to overcome that evil by meditating on all the ways you would like to see them die. Right? You're not going to get over it by meditating on where you could hide the body if you needed to. That's not going to help you, right? What you need is a strategy to overcome the evil. And there is one given to us by Paul. Look, it says, repay no one evil for evil. That's the, the, that's the criminal uh, justice system that is called to pay evil for evil. They are to render eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. That's God's call on the civil authorities. They're the ministers of justice. That's not you and I, at least not at this moment. We're not to repay evil for evil. But rather, what does he say? Give thought. Think about that person right now. You can ask Jesus for help with it right now. You can walk out of here happier than when you came in. And he could grant you mercy this morning. But you need to think about that person. Look, and give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And what he's basically saying is, think about how you can repay them, not with evil, but with good. Develop a strategy. I'm not saying be a doormat. I'm saying develop a strategy to overcome that sin. You have a hurtful person in your life that's constantly doing you wrong. Develop a strategy. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. You've got the person at the office that's constantly causing trouble for you. Get yourself a strategy to conquer. Think about how you can do them good. Have you ever thought about that, to do that? Say, you know what? What if I bake them a cake, right? What if I cut their grass, right? What if I look out for for their animals when they're on vacation? What if I volunteer to, to help them in this way or that way? Develop a strategy. Make a list. You know, you never know how you might actually win that person over and make your office way happier, right? I mean, I know some of you work in offices that are characterized by misery, 
dour, grumpy negativity. Who wants that? Instead of just meditating on it and feeding the beast, think about how you could start doing them good. You never know, they might, their heart might be warmed by your goodness. Just as the goodness of God led you to repentance, your goodness might lead them to repentance. You never know. Amen? Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I mean, they might be assaulting you physically, and so you're going to have to defend yourself. But if possible, if possible, just chill out, right? Live in peace with them, if possible. Verse 19, he says, never avenge yourselves. Right? You're not the minister of vengeance. That's the civil authorities. If it needs to be turned over to them, then turn it over to them. If you have turned it over to them and the civil authorities still have not done the right thing, you're going to have to leave that with God. Amen? You don't get to be a vigilante. So don't avenge yourself. Don't punish them with your mouth. Don't gossip about them. Don't tear down their reputation. Well, if I can't get the money out of them, I'm going to get their reputation. I'm going to harm that. Don't punish them. Don't attack them. Don't assault them. And don't think about doing it in your heart. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let him deal with it, okay? You don't need to envy the wicked. Psalm 37 explains that very clearly. God will take care of them. Verse 19, verse 20, and here it is, to the contrary, rather than fighting and quarreling, live at peace, right? Don't envy them. Don't try to get vengeance. Don't repay them evil for evil, but this is what you need to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Bring them lunch, right? If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. See, the Pharisees believed, and religious people often believe and live as though we should do good for our friends and evil to our enemies. The Bible teaches us to do good to our friends and to do good to our enemies in order that they might be one. Amen? In order that you might experience victory instead of misery. So if they're hungry, be their chef. If they are weighed down by a heavy burden, lift, lift those burdens and make their, light, their load lighter. Amen? Whatever they need, develop a strategy to meet that need so that you can, verse 21, overcome evil with good. That's a great strategy for victory and for happiness. Look, Christ Church, if, do you want to be happy? I do. I do. And I want to be in a church that's happy. So let's stand And then we're going to pray and ask for God to give us more mercy for one another. Father, we we thank you for how when we cried out to you, you did not reject us or turn us away. You did not stew on the offenses that we have caused you but rather you developed a strategy of good to overcome evil by good, by giving your life on the cross to pay for our sins and to defeat death. We pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in your footsteps, to be a a happy church that is ready to strategize on how to overcome evil and how to win even our own enemies through mercy. Help us to be a happy, merciful, easygoing, patient, kind church, just as you are. And help us, in particular, to be merciful to one another. In Jesus Christ's name, and all who agree, would you say amen? Amen.